Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the podcast. And I'm joined today by Gabriel Thompson, author of America's Social Arsonist, Fred Ross, and Grassroots Organizing in the 20th Century. Gabriel Thompson is a Steinbeck Fellow in Creative Writing at San Jose State Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the podcast, and I'm joined today by Gabriel Thompson, author of America's Social Arsonist, Fred Ross, and Grassroots Organizing in the 20th Century. Gabriel Thompson is a Steinbeck Fellow in Creative Writing at San Jose State University. He is author of several books, including Walking in the Shadows, and has written for Harper's New York, Mother Jones, Virginia Quarterly, and The Nation. Hello, Gabriel, and welcome to Books in Latino Studies. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's certainly a pleasure. Pleasure, and uh, I haven't told you this yet, but your—I'm sure you've heard from numbers. Your your book uh, on Ross has been eagerly anticipated, I believe, by by a nice few for some time, particularly those uh, you know aware of Cesar Chavez's background and other you know Mexican American organizations that benefited from his tutelage and mentoring. So. Uh, it's it's great that the book is out, and very excited to have you on the channel today. Yeah, I one of the things I you know, quickly realized as I was beginning sort of these interviews with people for the book was that there was. Um, I mean, I, I remember visiting with someone named Luis Gonzalez in Stockton who um, had worked with Ross in the fifties, and, and that was one of my first interviews. And he says, "Wait." wait for a second and we're in the backyard in his patio and he goes into his garage and brings out like a whole box full of documents about all the, the work he had done with Ross and with the groups. And, um, so there were not only people kind of, you know, waiting to learn more about Ross, but there are a bunch of people who had sort of worked with Ross that were really excited to, to talk about him. So I was, you know, I was lucky to, to stumble into the project. Well, that's great. And uh, I mentioned just very briefly, you know, a little bio I posted here uh, mentioned doesn't really do any justice. So I was wondering if you could start off our conversation by telling us a little bit, uh, you know, about your own personal background and, um, you know, your professional background as well. Yeah, so I, um, I, I started out not as a really a writer, but as an organizer. I grew up in California. Actually, my 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 parents live in San Jose. I spent my last years in in high school in San Jose, um, so it was interesting to learn, you know, that Ross and Chavez met each other in San Jose, um, not far from my parents' house. But so I I uh, graduated from um, this really small school called the Johnston Center, which is on the campus of the University of Redlands, mm-hmm. uh, east of LA in the Inland Empire, and. Um, and then went out to, to New York City and worked for uh, about five years or so as a as a community organizer, working mostly with um, 
uh, Mexican immigrants around housing, um, lead poisoning, evictions, um, those sorts of sorts of issues. Uh, and then after, at a certain point, uh, I was really getting interested in the folks that I was um, learning about. Uh, organizing in some ways is a bit like journalism, where you get to, you know, you get to cross paths with folks that you might um, otherwise not not get the opportunity to do so. And I became close to a, a cab driver in New York. His name was Enrique, and um, ended up kind of writing an article about him and then ended up going back to Mexico with him and left my organizing job and, and wrote, a, wrote a book about kind of his journey to the United States and how he viewed um, his struggles in the U.S., but also his kind of triumphs in the U.S. And that, that experience got me sort of down the, the journalism path of... Mm-hmm of writing, you know, most of my, my writing has in some way been about, um, Latino immigration or working conditions or labor, um, or organizing. <clears throat> and so I did, I, I, you know, I, I've, most of my work has been as a freelance journalist now. Um, and occasionally I'll, I'll run out of money or not that occasionally I'll run out of money uh, and then I'll, you know, go and do something else for a little while to, to have some more money to then lose money working as a journalist. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the Ross, you know, I, I came to Ross sort of, <clears throat> it, it was definitely a subject that, you know, it, it touched on many of my interests. Um, you know, organi- he was this key organizer. He also had played a, I've always been interested in history and he had a really, important and interesting and kind of overlooked role in a, in many different developments, um, in, in, in California, especially in the 20th century. So I was, you know, really, I was both excited to, once I realized, you know, for me, when I first came across the name Ross, I figured, oh, there's probably a bunch of books written about him or I arrived too late. That's always like, sort of like a journalist's constant fear is they're going to get scooped by something. And I figured right. for this book that, that someone had certainly written about Ross and I was fortunate to learn that, that no one had. So I was excited to do that, but also kind of not having a background in, in a, a formal background in history and not having, you know, I enjoy reading biographies, but I certainly never hadn't thought about writing one before really in a serious way. Um, I was also a little bit, um, uh, anxious about, you know, what, what it might entail to, to try to do this book. Right. And so, uh, can you tell us a bit more about uh, what, you know, being a little apprehensive about perhaps approaching a biography or, you know, a subject like this, which merges both, you know, biography and involves a lot of, you know, historical research, uh, certainly, uh, what pushed you to actually pursue the project and, and do it? Well, I was, you know, I was in, it was the this was a while ago. It was the fall of 2007. I was in, I was in Tucson and Arizona and I was getting ready to move to Yuma, Arizona to work in the, in the lettuce fields, um, as for a previous book working in the shadows in which I, um, kind of spent a year doing jobs in industries that rely upon Latino immigrants. So I was getting ready to work in, in the fields in Yuma, uh, cutting lettuce and, in preparation for that, I read the book, The Grapes of Wrath, which I had never, I had certainly been assigned it in high school, but I had never actually gone around to reading it by Steinbeck. Um, and I was struck by 
the Job family. The, the, the moment their luck kind of changes in that book is when they arrive at this migrant camp um, in, in the San Joaquin Valley that's run by the government, and it's a place that, where they can kind of um, rebuild their lives, and the migrants run the camp themselves, and they have a democratic council. And I was really struck by, by that description of this camp in the book. Uh, and the next, the next book I read was um, Sal Puedes, this kind of extended profile of Cesar Chavez mm-hmm. by uh, a New Yorker writer, Peter Matheson. And in that, it has this, Cesar gives this very dramatic description of how he got into the, uh, became an organizer, and it started with Ross kind of knocking on his door and Cesar being skeptical of this white outsider in East San Jose, and, but then being won over and sort of training under Ross. And when I put that book down, I was, immediately intrigued and um my intrigue kind of grew when i learned that one of ross's first jobs after college was was managing this a migrant labor camp that was the same one that steinbeck had had visited when he was doing research for what became the great graft so um i think for me the once i realized that here was this figure who kind of connected Steinbeck and the Depression and the Grapes of Wrath to Cesar Chavez and the UFW and the farm worker rebellions of the 60s and 70s. Um, that was, you know, that was really intriguing. Um, and then when I, uh, I kind of had to, I was working on another book, so I had the chance to let it just sort of simmer for a bit. You know, I was, I would visit the Ross archives in Stanford whenever I came home to visit my family because mm-hmm. at the time I was in New York. But, um, you know, I just kept accumulating documents, had a, a couple of nice conversations with Fred Ross Jr., Ross's son, who introduced right. me to folks like Dolores Huerta, and I, I was able to get some key interviews early on. And at a certain point, uh, I think it just, you know, it's like, okay, you know, this is this is happening. Um, you, you, you go far enough down the path, and it's, uh, maybe it seems longer to, to backtrack than to keep going forward. Right, right. Um, although with what I learned is in fact, usually, you know, biography, I don't know, maybe it's just history in general, but there's, for me, biography is, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, you can, you can see why some folks can spend 30 years working on a biography and they oh, die yeah. without ever finishing it because you, you're trying to, to learn as much as you can about someone. And, um, there's always new things being revealed, you know. Certainly. Mm-hmm. So I think that was, you know, that was that was my um, that was my kind of uh, initial interest. Then figuring out there are some papers, um, you know, that he's got. There were there were there were places to go, you know. It was, right. I'm going to write this book about Ross. Well, his papers are at Stanford, and um, and you know they're huge. And he had written. He'd spent much of his life trying to write his book on organizing, and it had mm-hmm. never really been never been published. But you know, there's hundreds of pages of his own writing. There's there's 444 audio tapes at Stanford of him giving trainings or being interviewed or just talking about stuff. So, um, you know, I remember my excitement the first time I went to the archives at Stanford and sat down, and it was the first archive I've ever ever been in, and kind of looking through these documents and seeing handwritten notes, right. um, and thinking like, "Wow, this is super cool." Um, but then, then I, then I learned that, you know, you go and visit all these archives and for me and you come back and you're trying to tell the story and it's like, wait, what the hell did I photocopy this thing? What, what am I looking at? You know, it, right. it can be hard to keep, I, if I ever write a biography again, I'll definitely be a little more systematic uh, okay. as I go into it. 
<laughs> well, the the finished product came out, uh, you know, very nice, and um, I think cer- certainly I, I bet it was a pleasant surprise walking into that Stanford archive and and finding that treasure trove, if you will, on Ross. Um, I I'm very intrigued. First of all, the, the cover is great, and we're going to post a picture of it. It'll be on you know the website once this interview posts. Um, and uh, so I believe it's a picture of you know a very young Ross. He looks like he's in. Or near an FSA camp, that's a Farm Security Administration camp, right? And that's Woody Guthrie standing next to him. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's, a, it's a it's a fantastic photo. Yeah, it um, is. and you can kind of see you can see uh, you know Ross is still he's still sort of muscled. He right. he has spent much of his college years and high school years kind of working out. So you see he's he looks a bit like a movie star and. Um, and yeah, so it's a, it's a great photo, and that was a period in Ross's life. I think that was really, uh, really critical to understand. No, it really is, and, and the title's very catching. And, and to those familiar with Ross and, and his axioms, uh, it, it'll be one that that sounds familiar. But for um, those of our listeners that aren't too familiar, maybe they know of him, but they don't know of his axioms. Will you explain uh, where the title comes from? The title comes from that is yeah. America's social artist. Yeah, so America's social arsonist, his, one of the definitions um, he had a, a, of an organizer was um, an organizer, a good organizer is a social arsonist who goes around setting people on fire. And so the idea, um, it's, it's evocative, it's also kind of confusing, you know, if you, you, it takes a little bit of um, backstory to figure out exactly what, um, what it means, social arsonist, but... Um, at the end of the day, you know, an organizer, they're, they're, I mean, you can't say there's one thing an organizer does, um, but you have to bring new people in. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to sort of encourage people. You have to inspire them. You have to, like, sort of, you know, at some level convince them that they have more power than they might be feeling at the moment. Um, and that was, uh, it, what do you call it, being a social arsonist or encouraging people, or that was, um, you know, what Ross, what was one of the things that was most intriguing about Ross is that he really had a way of, of, um, it wasn't always that he had to convince people like Cesar Chavez or Dolores Huerta that there was a problem. Right. Um, cause you know, it was more like, okay, we all know there's problems, but, uh, man, I, there's, it's just really a, problem that's way too big for me and Ross had a way of breaking things down and sort of I think explaining uh, a potential path forward that made people feel like oh yeah of course we can do that you know mm-hmm. um, it's of course and uh, and I think that that sort of confidence he was he was really um, skilled and worked really hard at at, at um, getting people convinced in their own abilities Right. Right. And um, I think that, well, I think the title too, it it really, naturally, it's one of Ross's sayings, but I think it, it both encapsulates uh, really the narrative as well that, that you tell. Um, I I think a number, those familiar with, with Ross are are aware of the the different Mexican Americanist organizations that, that he, you know, helped um, either establish or helped grow and was involved in. But uh at least I wasn't aware of all of his work prior to, um, you know, even his, his work in 
with uh, some Orange County activists on the Mendez case. I was I found out some of that stuff when I was an undergrad doing some research, and then I, I later, of course, found out about his CSO work. But but the pre-story, you know, his what you title uh, in part one of the book, you know, the education of an organizer uh, is is. Just as much as, you know, all the stuff after, uh, you know, the, the, the post-war period where he's, you know, involved with a number of organizations, all the work he has before, you know, uh, during the war and during the Great Depression, jumping from various parts of New Deal programs and and uh, his education, as you will, is is just as sweeping and breathtaking. So can you, maybe we can start there. Sorry. And we can. Yeah. Uh, there's a, yeah, no there's Oakland, so there's a lot of sirens going around. <laughs> um well, maybe we can yeah, start I mean, there that's... and talk a bit about uh, what. Uh, well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about his first his his kind of his family, just really quickly, because he seems, you know, from his background, uh, I was definitely find out surprised surprised to find out, you know, his his parents' background, and that just from that, you would think he was really the unlikely, you know, organizer and activist that he came out to be. Yeah, he grew up in a. Uh, both of his parents were conservative. He grew up in an all white. Uh, neighborhood part of Echo Park, Los Angeles. Um, he recalls both his parents referring to poor people as trash. He's, his mom pulls him out of a, a grade school when he's young, when she learns that it has some black students in it. Um, and so he really uh, is not, you know, does not seem like the kind of person that's going to spend his life doing what he did. Um, I think, you know, if you turn it, his, his turn to the, to the left happens, um, begins to happen at the university of Southern California where he, he goes to college and he meets, um, uh, one, one student in particular, a guy named Eugene Woolman, who was a, a Jewish kid from the East coast and who was just this sort of, um, open communist, uh, very kind of fiery and passionate and, you know, kind of introduced, Roth to these the the events that were going around, you know there was bread lines, there were Mexicans being deported from um, during the depression, there was labor struggles, and I think more than anyone at 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 um, at USC, it was it was a woman that really just kind of made the world pop a bit for Roth and mm-hmm. took him out of his Echo Park neighborhood um, and seeing sort of that that the world is full full of all these um, incredible conflicts and that, uh, woman ends up, uh, going to Spain, um, with, as part of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and, and dying, um, fighting against, uh, Franco and the, in the, the fascists in Spain. And so that both his life and sort of his early tragic death played a, a you know, a big role, um, for Ross. And it was something that in his, in his papers, there's a kind of a, hand scribbled. He had terrible handwriting. Um, mm-hmm. Ross did, and unfortunately <laughs> made some things difficult for me. And people that spend time in archives will, you know, appreciate the, the pain that that can be. But he had he had this kind of scribbled note. One of the first things I found was a list of his influences that he had written up maybe in his seventies. And um, and you see Eugene Woolman right at the top. Um, mm-hmm. But but he he so he graduates from college and he's you know sort of interested in the left. Um, and in the progressive politics of the day. But the other important thing that happens is, he, is that he can't get a job teaching high school history, which is what he sort of is, has been prepared to do. And instead, because there just aren't very many teacher jobs, it's the 
the depression is going on. And he gets, the only job he can really find is first handing out relief checks um, to poor farm workers um, in Riverside County, right. um, many of who are kind of dustful migrants from Oklahoma and um, Texas, and then graduates and runs this um, migrant camp that, that had been built as a kind of emergency response to all these folks coming into California by the federal government. Uh, and he manages uh, the the Arvin camp. It's the one that, that I mentioned that Steinbeck had visited mm-hmm. um, a n- number of times. And that's, you know, I think that's really where he is thrust into um, sort of seeing day in and day out what it's like um, to, to sort of be working extremely hard and be earning extremely little for it. And sort of the, the forces that were, that were uh, organized against farm workers. And then also he's there when, um, you know, the, the grapes of wrath comes out and suddenly the camp that he's running is people are paying attention to it. You know, celebrities are coming to visit politicians are visiting. Eleanor Roosevelt comes to visit um, mm-hmm. because the the Grapes of Wrath has kind of put this story on a on the front pages, and and a union calls a strike uh, of cotton pickers, hoping to kind of use the partly to use the the notoriety and the new attention of the Grapes of Wrath to win uh, wage increases. And Ross is there, uh, the camp that he's working is kind of like a stronghold for the union, and he sees um, folks sort of organizing, and he also sees folks. Um, kind of getting, losing, getting crushed. Um, but, but I think that he, he refers to those two years that he works at that camp as his, some of the two most turbo, uh, turbocharged years of his life. Um, because I think it, it again, um, it, it, it convinced him first of all, that he loved work. He was so curious about, uh, about the folks and he loved hanging out. He loved to try to get to know people and gain their confidence. Um, and he just had this, this desire to listen to people. And um, so I think that those two years were, were really important in sort of setting him down the, the, the winding path that he would take. Yeah. It, uh, what interested me from that, that part as well, that, uh, that his work with the uh, new ideal agencies, the um, you know, state relief agency and the farm security administration, I think uh, you cover those in chapters two and three. Uh, and it, it seems that the, what had a really big impact on him was, uh, you know, to, to see how the the democratic structure of the FSA camps worked or could work. And I think he saw good and bad examples of it. And then in the Arvin camp, he really tried to really improve that. Um, and from those FSA council meetings, he he you wrote that he learned two things. And one you just mentioned, you know, a and the need and to listen to people. And that's that's something as you meant you mentioned he had. He had a very genuine curiosity. Uh, but then he also learned, uh, you know, through listening to take time to get to know them so he could really understand the issues they were dealing with. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and it was a, it was a good sort of training or proving ground, I think for Ross, because, uh, you know, the, although there was a lot of, there were a lot of efforts to try to help, uh, these farm workers, these so-called Okies and Arkies that are coming in, there was also a lot of conde- uh, condescension, a lot right. of kind of paternalism and treating, you know, treating them like they were totally incapable of managing their own affairs or that, 
um, you know, that the reason that they were dirt poor was somehow, you know, something they had done wrong, not forces of nature or economic structures. And so there were, you know, they were skeptical to, to some degree, at least some of them expressed this of, of people coming in and treating them like children or right. treating them as if they didn't have a brain in their head. And so, um, Ross, I think Ross's approach of sort of naturally affording people, um, dignity or naturally assuming that they are, you know, they're, they're worth listening to closely. They're worth, um, spending time with, uh, you know, he, he talks about when he first, when he first arrives at the camp, it's also a unique situation because the previous manager, has been essentially kicked out by the by the residents. Um, right. He the residents had sent a petition. They'd signed more than a hundred people to um, headquarters of the Farm Security Administration in San Francisco, accusing the previous manager of the camp, who is supposed to be kind of this, you know, democracy builder in some sense, um, of of doing any number of terrible things, violent acts, and um, and so Ross was coming into a situation in which. The, the the folks at the camp were were I think naturally skeptical of of the managers and so he worked really hard going uh, tent to tent kind of having long conversations with people I mean I think that again was good was good training ground you know if, if you it's one thing to be kind of a person on the left and think that you know poor people need to organize and that they tend to get screwed by rich people and whatever it is. Uh, it's another thing to be an organizer and really enjoy spending the time talking to people and listening to people. And right. I think at Auburn, he, it becomes clear that, um, you know, he's not going to become a lawyer or a policy person or, uh, any other, uh, he's, what he loves to do is, is hang out with people and sort of, uh, help them think through their problems. Right, and this seems to stem from something you, you write very early in the book, within the first dozen pages or so, uh, which was that even as a child, Ross had a very uh, keen fascination with those that seemed to be kept outside of you know society. And I think at, at the time you had written that, it was in reference to um, some racial minorities that, that lived around him, African Americans in particular, that his mom wanted to steer him away from, uh, that even as he would... Um, you know, meander to take trips. I think it was to his grandparents' house. He would, he would take, um, you know, a trolley and, and intentionally walk, you know, through neighborhoods or areas where he would see those people. You know, he'd see either African Americans or other, you know, racial minorities or, you know, people that were poor. Um, and he, he was always seemingly curious or fascinated by that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's always interesting too to think about how people decades later write about the formative experiences in their life, you know. And mm-hmm. um, uh, but he he certainly, he, I, you know, he was his parents tried to create, uh, and especially his parents' divorces. He's never very close to his dad, but his parents divorced, and he lives with his mom um, from a pretty young age, and. Um, I think there was there was just the kind of anxiety that his parents had and his mom had about um, you know malignant forces or dangerous forces uh, and, and Los Angeles was also changing uh, you know it was becoming more diverse it was becoming more a center of, of Mexican American life and there was um, you know the city that had been sort of boasted as being the, the all American you know read white city of of the United States sort of um, of of changes that were occurring. And um, so I don't know how much was just a natural 
you know, when you're forbidden to do something, it becomes mm-hmm. much more interesting to you. Right. Um, but, but he also, he had a, you know, I think he had just a kind of natural, I don't know how you, how you account for this, but had a natural kind of democratic ethos that there was mm-hmm. just nothing as he got into the world and started meeting with people, there's nothing in his mind that made racism or making thinking that like one group is somehow better than another, or even, you know, he, he, when he, what he sees with his own eyes and with his, you know, kind of in his own daily life, um, it's just kind of too powerful of an affirmation that, uh, kind of like an anti-racist affirmation that despite what his parents say, despite what all these people, you know, are saying, despite when he's working in internment camps with Japanese Americans and there's all this propaganda against them, um, that he, when he's face to face with folks that everyone else is saying are somehow uh, less than, it just doesn't make sense to him. You know, he just doesn't believe it. Right. Right, uh, certainly. And so we're we're talking about his time at the Arvin camp, and while he's there, he gets you know seemed to be you know also very interested and engaged in uh, you know the labor movement and labor organizing, and, and really supports the uh, CIO. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, you know, organizers. I think it was Luke Hinman that you mentioned that are coming into the camp and and uh, drive this you know cotton strike that that. Uh, that uh, seems to make a, you know raise a big ruckus at the time, and so due to that, right, his strong support of the labor movements and, and the strike, he his time at the FSA camp starts to phase out, and uh, he secures a position with the War Relocation Authority, and uh, right around you know right just during the war. So you talk a bit about his experiences uh, with that, with the WRA, um, and uh, in relocating uh, Japanese interns. Yeah, so he, you know, he, they, they, they're looking for people. The government is, you know, hurriedly building these um, relocation centers to kind of round up people, ethnic Japanese, uh, and then sending them from these relocation centers on the West Coast inland to uh, internment camps. And it's all, you know, you look back at it when you're reading these documents, it's, it's amazing how quickly... This, this happened and how little debate there was really. But, um, so his first, his first duty is to help one of the, one of the problems that they face is that, uh, that the complications is that, you know, once the order is made that the ethnic Japanese need to be, um, banned from the Pacific, from the West coast, basically, so they can either move inland or if they don't move inland, they can kind of begin this process of, of being forcibly relocated. Uh, the Japanese Americans have are are really skilled growers, and they've got all this land that's very valuable. And so, one of Ross's first duties is to try to oversee the transfer. He's he's not making these policy decisions. He's just sort of a a low level person who's um, going. He gets assigned to San Diego, but the other other FSA folks are in other parts of the state. But basically, trying to transfer land ownership from Japanese Americans to, um, to mostly white growers who are buying their land for pennies on the dollar because, um, you know, it's, they, they realize that the Japanese are in no position to negotiate there. They're being kicked out. And, um, so that I think leaves, uh, he, he watches, he writes about seeing these lines of Japanese men, um, just having their, you know, totally bewildered 
and having their properties essentially stolen from them and not having any idea what, what comes next. Um, but then he, then he, once that process is over, he goes and sort of is assigned to run more or less community affairs uh, at one of those in, uh, internment camps, which is called Minidoka, and it was in Idaho. And like many of the tournament camps, um, it's in this totally inhospitable terrain and, um, at, you know, more or less in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and he lasts there a few months. And he, at this point, I think early on, he was sort of went with the flow of the Japanese American internment. Um, he was, you know, he had come out of the New Deal agency that he thought was idealistic, the Farm Security Administration. He was a fan of, of Roosevelt. And so he, you know, he had worked for the government for a while. And I think when the government made these statements about all these plots that were being hatched um, by disloyal Japanese Americans, he tended to, you know, I think his instinct was to, was to go along and believe the, believe what they were saying. But when he gets to Idaho and at the internment camp, he quickly realizes that, um, or comes to the conclusion that, there's just no disloyalty here mm-hmm. and that, right. um, he, uh, it's not, it, it's, it's not subtle. Like it, when, when the army eventually allows Japanese Americans to, to, um, volunteer to fight, uh, for, for the country that has just sort of, uh, massively incarcerated them based on nothing more than their ethnicity. Um, Japanese Americans sign up like crazy and they go and fight and win all these honors. And so there was, um, he he quickly feels like he arrives there. I think in September, and by December he just wants to get out. He has not. He's supposed to be kind of advocating for them in little ways, and but he really has no power to do anything. And right. you know he's working with people who are essentially locked up. So then he transfers to Cleveland, um, and uh, I think he lives there for a couple of years. And he, there he there's a new policy that allows Japanese Americans to be released from the internment camps if they can find jobs in housing in England. And so his job, Ross's task is to convince landlords and employers in Cleveland to agree to rent to and hire uh, Japanese Americans. Right. And again, it's not exactly organizing, but it certainly is learning how to deal with people right. and, how, and how to, you know, because uh, you're, you're essentially going to landlords or employers and saying, uh, hey, you know, uh, the people that like recently we thought were so dangerous, they had to be locked up. Would you like them working for you or you want to rent houses to them? So it was a, it was a, it was a, it was not an easy task. Um, but he found ways to, to be, to be effective and to lean on people. And I think that again, um, sort of the, uh, he was remembered as, and the reports kind of show him. Uh, just working around the clock to try to convince people and leaning on people and make and um, finding ways in which he could kind of game the system to get Japanese Americans into even you know some of the best jobs are, are defense related in these war related uh, plants and munitions plants and technically many of the Japanese Americans aren't supposed to be working there but he finds ways to work around these restraints to get them those jobs and at one point which this is this is uh, fun to discover. They actually get into some trouble because the Japanese Americans at some of these uh, jobs um, that are working in plants related to uh, war production, 
get into trouble because they're working so hard. Oh, and yes, all the, yes. the white workers kind of uh, start complaining to their boss saying, you know, that these, these new workers are, are making them look bad. And so Ross calls them in and essentially says, you know, uh, just look to your person to your left or right and work as fast as them. Right. Uh, don't, don't go any faster. And as Ross recalls, they kind of look at him, you know, sort of downfunded. They hear there's this war going on. They're trying to win this war and they're being told to, to work uh, more slowly. So I think for me, that was a, it was a, it's a period that I never knew very much about. Mm-hmm. And the, the perspective of Ross as someone who's kind of this person on the ground, right in the middle of a lot of that, and who left document, left a trail, was was really great to try to to, to recover. Gotcha. And as as I recall too, it it shows his work with the both you know the War Relocation Authority and um, you know his earlier work with the SRA. I think it shows him his ability to. Um, be changed by those that he worked with. And what I mean by this is, is initially you mentioned that when he's working with the SRA, he's kind of, you know, handing out checks and initially he, he thinks it's a, you know, a really good thing to do. And he eventually learns that some people are gaming the system and he gets embittered by that. And then he listens, actually sits down and, and talks to, uh, you know, some of these migrants and, and sees, gets, a, I think what you, you state here, a fuller three dimensional picture of people that, that it's neither the case that either the people on the left make that all these, uh, you know, workers and migrants are type of idealist type peoples that, you know, are very deserving of, you know, any, uh, you know, help and, and assistance and, and total victims of a system. Uh, but also, nor is the, the right side of it true, uh, in that, uh, you know, these people are just lazy and destitute and inept. Uh, so that's the lesson from the SRA and he, he starts to, Again, sit down and learn learn from people. Really, you know, uh, listen by listening to them and, and and see them as full whole human beings. And the the W the uh, WRA does this as well because initially, I believe, um, if I recall this correctly, he was, although not a you know a, a you know a war hawk by any means, or um, uh, you know he did although feel that it was necessary for the Japanese to be interned in some way. He he kind of accepted that. Uh, argument initially. But as as you mentioned, as you've just been explaining, as he worked with these people and he saw their loyalty and their work ethic and all the things that they were willing to do, he did see, you know, the very deep problems with the program and, and saw it to be, you know, full of just immorality and it was unjust and that it really grown out of this hysteria. But uh, what I appreciated again from that was to to see Ross's ability to change his position in that way, right? Understand by his working with people that uh, initially, maybe his initial assessments uh, were wrong and then that influenced him moving forward. Yeah, he, and he, it, that, that's right. You know, it's, it's a, it's a good point. It's also his, he got really close to what was quote unquote the problem too. So he wasn't, it wasn't, these weren't abstract things. He wanted to, you know, um, when he was about his time handing out relief checks, he was being told that in fact, maybe some of the, what he was doing was creating this chronic dependency that by handing out relief checks, it was, you know, encouraging laziness among these farm workers and that if they were just sort of buckle down a little bit more, they could, they could earn enough that they wouldn't be dependent on the government to help cover their costs, um, their basic needs. And so he, he learns, you know, that, and I think it's an important part of his kind of life and shows his, his, in some ways, unorthodox methods he sometimes uses, but he, he learns that some of the folks that 
he's driving around in the fields and sees that some people working in the fields are the same people that he's been handing checks to who said they can't find work. Mm-hmm. And that really, you know, he gets, he gets pissed off and you start, when people say they can't find work, you start taking them right to the carrot fields, which um, was, there was always, I guess, as he tells it, um, there was always a need for more people in the carrot, uh, harvesting carrots that poured, paid poorly. And so he'd drive them off of there to work. But then some people made so little still, even working in the carrots, that they qualified right. for various relief. And so he he decides that, um, that, the, that there must just be like, you know, not working hard enough in the fields. And, and so he goes and works in the fields one day that I think he hopes to show that, in fact, if you buckle down, you can come back with these and paycheck. And I think he works, I think he works like 12 hours or something and earns, comes home with like 84 cents or something, right, you know. Right. Yeah. And um, and gone is kind of his talk about chronic dependency. So exactly, I, it wasn't it wasn't like he just fought through the issue a lot, and that's how he came to the. You know, he really went for the Japanese Americans. He's he's working directly with people. He's kind of he wants to go out and figure out what's going on in some level, and I think that helps. That shows to his uh, that kind of curiosity that he doesn't he doesn't he's not he's not. Um, satisfied, I think, with just things being abstract arguments. He wants to get close to whatever the action is. Right. And so uh, with these uh, New Deal type and, and wartime organizations, this really establishes a foundation for, as, as you put it here and organize the book, of Ross's education. And then in the post-war period, he he then makes the move to you know, be more of an organizer and an activist, and particularly amongst the population that it becomes most known for working with, that is Mexican-Americans, of whom he had very, you know, brief and just little, uh, uh, I think, experience, you know, with previously, you know, uh, either during, um, you know, during the 30s and 40s. So can you tell us a bit about, you know, this transition of, you know, how he, you know, pivots after World War uh, two from, you know, working with, uh, you know, New Deal and wartime type, uh, you know, organizations, to getting more involved in, you know, as an activist and, and, and particularly with the Mexican American communities. Yeah. Again, it's, it's sort of, he, he, he learns from other people and learns from his situation, his experiences that he, he gets hired with a group called American council on race relations and they're based out of Chicago. And essentially their, their mission is to try to, you know, it's it's nebulous, but it's to improve race relations um, in the in the country. And there um, there was a lot of, as there always is, but maybe an especially uh, large amount of sort of tension and turmoil in the post World War II period because you have you know you have African Americans and Latinos and Mexican Americans who have gone and fought in World War II for democracy, and now they're coming back and they're you know, uh, they're finding the situation not, not changed. Uh, and, and Ross gets hired to, to go work in Southern California by this, by this group to, you know, to, to, in, in the area of the Citrus Belt, the Inland Empire, Riverside County, um, San Bernardino, Santa Ana, Orange County, um, to try to essentially build kind of committees of, um, multi-ethnic, multiracial committees that can in some way work towards, um, improving race relations uh, among mostly among uh, Mexican Americans and whites, but also African Americans as well. And he very quickly 
loses, I think, a lot of interest in building these um, these committees, which tend to be, I think, from his experiences, dominated by kind of well-meaning uh, liberal whites who don't really want to do too, who who are happy to help as long as it doesn't like cause any sort of tension or conflict. Right. Um, and and in fact, the questions that they're dealing with that he's working on, they end up working on from school segregation, um, voter registration, uh, Latino political power, you know, these, these are controversial and they're the kind of issues that, that, um, you know, kind of by definition will create and, and, and encounter resistance. And, and one of the people, there's two people that he, uh, he, at this period, he calls it his organizing uh, toddling period, I guess, with that he credits as being important. One is a sociologist at the University of Redlands named Ruth Tuck, right. who has just written a book about the Mexican-American community in San Bernardino uh, called Not With a Fist, I believe, mm-hmm. and then who kind of encourages him um, to look, Ross, to look at the fact that, um, that you know, Mexican-American community is growing, but they're sort of politically out of the loop. They're not engaged. They're easily abused. Um, they're not, uh, super well organized. And another person is, uh, um, Nacio Lopez, mm-hmm. who's, uh, a publisher of a, of a newspaper, but also kind of an activist who, I mean, not kind of, he was an activist and he used his newspaper as kind of a, as a, as a tool, um, for his activism. And both of them <clears throat> kind of, Convince Ross in some way that that uh, that Mexican Americans are have the potential, uh, and you know these are these these also in these towns that are you know where the the the, the racism and discrimination is is so overt. Um, uh, you know you have you know cemeteries that won't bury Mexican Americans. You have schools that are segregated. You have swimming pools. Like I think it was an orange where they had one day of the week was Mexican day. And that was the day where kids of Mexican descent could swim in the pool. Right. And that would be like a Monday. And then on Monday night, they would drain the drain pool the entirely pool, yep. and fill it with clean water <laughs> so that white kids wouldn't get, um, you know, infected by the water they had touched. So, you know, it's the, the, the injustices are very stark. And, and what Ross does, uh, and this is the years 1946, 1947, is he kind of sets aside this, the idea of working with these multi-ethnic committees of um, kind of that he thought didn't have the the stomach for a fight and instead went out and organized black and Latino parents and farm workers in these little communities. And um, over the course of a couple, two years, they, they, one group, he runs, um, helps develop this really effective kind of voter registration and get out the vote campaign in Riverside and, and throws out, they're able to throw out a, um, a city council person. Uh, another place they help, uh, you know, desegregate uh, a school or two. And I, that, that period, he, he, he finishes that maybe it was a year or a year and a half of organizing for, for the group ACRR who aren't thrilled with what he's doing because, it's generating a fair amount of controversy. Um, the ACR saw their role kind of as being a consultant, writing reports. Um, they didn't see it as someone who would go in and help organize the community, overthrow um, an elected official or, you know, embarrass um, politicians and 
hold protests. And so um, soon Ross is being followed by, you know, the FBI opens a file on him and mm-hmm. that big growers organization starts following them around, accusing him of being a communist, which, which uh, he was not. Um, but, but that, that, period is is important both in terms of I think the what they're able to accomplish but also uh, convincing Ross that um, the people that are going to be able to push that he really wants to focus on um, first to convince them that Mexican Americans um, you know are have an incredible potential politically and that um, and that they're being unjustly uh, discriminated against and and secondly that that it's the people it's it's the people most directly affected by the issues mm-hmm. who are the ones who, as he finds, are going to stand up and fight back and aren't going to be as afraid. It's not going to necessarily be the most politically connected folks um, in the neighborhood, maybe at businesses that they feel like they could be vulnerable to be boycott or whatever. I'm talking about like Latinos there. He's, um, but it's going to be the, it's going to be the farm worker. It's going to be the, the laborer, the folks who, um, feel kind of the the sting most acutely who who are going to be the ones pushing through changes um, and and he that never really he never reconsiders that position that that remains his position for the next you know however many decades he's organizing that that you have to go down to the base and find people directly affected um, very little confidence in the ability of sort of well connected people at the top to to push anything through. No, exactly. That that definitely seems to be a lesson that he came out of this period with, you know, a, a distrust for organizational structures. And, and from then on, he was always very apprehensive about being involved with anything that talked about, you know, building coalitions between organizations. As you mentioned, he was much more inclined from these experiences once he met people that, uh, you know, as he, you know, applied the two previous lessons he learned, which was to listen and take time to get to know people once he did that, he, he realized these people were, one, keenly aware of, of course, the issues they were facing and had ideas about what to do about it. Um, and he was just able to literally provide that little bit of a, as, as the title implies, a little bit of a fire underneath them, point them in certain directions, you know, by organizing, as you say here, these, um, you know, get out the vote campaigns, um, uh, voter registration campaigns. And, and that's something that would continue throughout the rest of his organizing, right? He, after his work in the, the citrus region from Riverside to Orange County, he moves on to L.A. where he gets involved with the organization that, that really he's, he's perhaps best well-known for, um, which is the Community Services Organization. So you talk a little bit about that. I mean, the, the real meat of the book is, you know, the middle chapters, and they cover a lot of this. And this is, of course, where Chavez comes into the picture. So will you, will you talk more about, um, you know, what he what he, you know, learns from this work, what he does, and, and, you know, how he changes also during this time while working particularly with the, the community service organization or the CSO. Yeah, so he 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 leaves from his time in, in Orange County and Riverside County and some work in San Diego, too, I think, um, convinced that he, he's doing what he really wants to be doing. And, and he... He links up with, uh, he ends up kind of being let go from the organization he's with, but he links up his worry of his work, uh, gets to Saul Linsky, the kind of organizer and writer out of Chicago who wrote, uh, Rules for Radicals and Revolution for Radicals. And he comes out and meets Ross and immediately they kind of hit it off. They see things, um, more or less the same way. And Alinsky wants to, 
bring Ross to organize uh, maybe in Montana, and Ross is, is set on organizing by now uh, in Los Angeles, in particular in East Los Angeles, um, which is, you know, it's a much bigger stage, many more people, but um, but similar issues. And so he, he, he convinces Alinsky to hire him to work uh, in East L.A. and try to build a political organization um, uh, there, political in terms of power, not political in terms of like a party. Uh, and and so he uh, he arrives again at a really uh, in, in sort of important moment. Um, a, a young man named Edward Roy Ball had had just run for city council, and um, against sort of an elderly opponent, and had lost pretty badly in for, in a district that included the neighborhood of Boyle Heights, uh, but also parts of downtown. And part of the reason uh, that they, they blamed the loss was to the fact that um, so many of his kind of natural constituency, which were the Mexican-Americans, were not registered to vote. And so Ross links up with kind of the, the remnants of that campaign. And with still, you know, it's just some family members, some friends, some, some people that still kind of want to stay involved uh, and ends up becoming sort of an organizer for their group, which they, they call the community service organization. Uh, it's a, you know, it's an extremely boring name. Uh, <laughs> and I think yeah. that was sort of, that was not, uh, incidentally, that was not, that, that was, uh, intentional because it was also a, an extremely sort of sensitive period in which to be organizing, you know, exactly. you have the, um, McCarthy era and you have all this, and you already have like parts of the East LA being declared. So, you know, naturally kind of, um, subversive, and so but this again. And when you look at Ross, his work in building the CSO from East LA, and then taking it trying to help build it statewide, um, he's he's operating at a time in which what he's doing, which is essentially trying to build, help encourage the development of of uh, Mexican American political power, is 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 controversial and is seen with you know it's there's reason to think it's. For a lot of people, I think it's subversive. So he's he's very conscious of trying to how he portrays his work as kind of an Americanization campaign of mm-hmm. of, of describing. And I think CSO, the term community service organization, is 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 comes out of that sort of wanting to position the work you do in a less threatening way. But um, in East LA, they he kind of takes what he had learned in. Um, especially in Riverside when he does this, this get out the vote campaign and um, recruits and um, works with a lot of the local um, leaders uh, and people that are really motivated to try to, to try to change East LA to or try to change LA to try to get the, the city power structure to pay attention to them, to try to tackle issues like police brutality um, and segregated housing and the lack of a political voice. And in 47, Roy Ball had got Edward Roy Ball, who had run for city council, had been beat really easily. In 49, he runs again. And by now, Ross um, and, and many other people have created um, a community service organization chapter in, in East L.A., actually a couple of them, that is really a grassroots machine. They've got people knocking on doors. They've got people holding uh, house meetings and living rooms, and um, he's got like index cards of you know ten thousand people with Spanish surnames to call that are registered to make sure they get out the vote. He's organized 
They've got like um, cars going and picking people up to vo- voting places. And so when Roy Ball runs in '49, he 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 crushes his opponent, the same guy who he had lost to before. Um, and it was, I think, it was an important victory, not just because it, it put Roy Ball on a stage in which he could advocate for 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 a bunch for people and for issues that often were ignored, but also it was kind of a a wake up call to the city um, that there's a new group in town and um, that you have to start uh, paying attention to us. In fact, soon after the election, the mayor of LA uh, arranges to come out to East LA to meet with, um, with leaders of the CSO in which they kind of berate him for not, for not taking their charges of police brutality seriously. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's an important kind of an important campaign. Um, and <clears throat> again, you know, the, the CSO shifts after Roy Ball is elected to focus um, on, on police brutality in a big way, and they, they win a, uh, um, this one um, kind of big case called Bloody Christmas in which some cops, not some, like maybe 50 of them, had uh, beaten a group of Latino and a few white kids um, sort of savagely in the, in the jail. And this, the CSO helps kind of blow that case uh, make it uh, make, take the case public, and it leads to cops getting jail sentences. Uh, so by the time that Ross, but the whole time that they're doing this, they're also not able to really, you know, financially pay for the work. You know, Ross right. is as good as he is as an organizer; he's a terrible fundraiser, and he also has very little interest, which might explain part of his lack of. But he just is—he never really learns how to how to raise money. Um, so the funds run out, and he ends up moving to San Jose, uh, so the uh, Northern California, um, and he still has this dream. He gets another job, but he's not so into it. But but he still has this dream of, um, which I think he's he's had for a few years now, of taking the CSO and turning what they had done in East LA into you know bringing it to other cities and towns and barrios and around the state of California and really linking them up. And that's when he meets, uh, you know, he moves to Northern California in 52. Uh, in June of 1952, he's, he's shifted to working in East San Jose, um, you know, more or less trying to do what he did in East LA. And that's where he kind of famously knocks on the door of his brush to the door of Cesar Chavez, who at that point has, <clears throat> I think he's 25, um, you know, working part-time at a lumberyard, growing family, but eventually um, is, you know, is kind of the vision that Ross lays, for, lays out of building the political power of Mexican-Americans across the state is is very enticing and exciting to Chavez. Mm-hmm. And he just naturally, he naturally kind of gets, he likes it, he gets it. He, and, and he becomes sort of one of, he becomes kind of a, you know, he's Ross becomes sort of his mentor and then they get some funds to actually hire Chavez. And so Chavez goes on the payroll of CSO or of the industrial areas foundation, technically, which is the money's coming through Solinsky in Chicago. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and from 52 when, when Chavez and Ross first meet, and then I think 53 Chavez becomes a full-time organizer with the CSO. Um, for most of the next decade until 62 when Chavez leaves to found, you know, go on this 
what seems like a crazy quest to organize a union of farm workers. Um, they are in motion around the state of California developing chapters of the community service organization and registering people to vote, register, uh, getting people to become citizens so they can register to vote, getting them to vote, taking on police brutality, um, and, you know, and then even more basic level, like getting streets paved, um, getting stoplights and stop signs installed. And out of the CSO, out of that decade of work, uh, come a lot of, you know, very important folks, not just Cesar Chavez, but three years later after they meet in 1955, Ross uh, bumps into Dolores Fernandez, who will soon become Dolores Huerta. At a meeting in Stockton, and sort of, she again is is totally down for the cause. You know, it's not like he has to convince Chavez or Huerta that there are problems, but he he's sort of providing a an example, a path for ways in which people could could do something about those problems. So she is planning on a career in teaching, and instead becomes sort of gets consumed with the CSO. <laughs> um, and there are a whole number of other folks. Um, in, in areas from all the, you know, Brawley, all the Central Valley, um, Delano, Bakersfield, Fresno, all these places that where you have these leaders um, sort of coming out of the CSO uh, in these chapters. And that, you know, that was, I think, the fight for Ross bumping into Caesar and sort of mentoring Caesar was probably his, what he considered his, his proudest moment. But I think it's, you know, the CSO... He he really gave um, you know a, a good part of his his life to to building the CSO, and by the time he leaves the CSO, and I think it's 1963, he's it sort of started going down. It's not a, it, not sort of it is going down. Uh, it's not as vibrant. Uh, Chavez has left because he wants to organize farm workers on his own, and he doesn't think the CSO has. He thinks it's become too middle class and too sort of reformist, and they don't they don't have the fight um, that he has to. And so Ross leaves the CSO in '63, and um, you know it's, it's sort of a it's a down period for him because it seems like it's it, for him it's kind of falling apart, and it does quickly lose a lot of its um, immediate relevance, but out of it grows then the United Farm Workers and Chavez and Huerta and all these other leaders that come out of that. And, um, and I think it's, it's, I don't know exactly why the CSO hasn't, um, got a lot of attention, mm-hmm. you know, it might that it's, it's just, it's not as exciting at the time as United Farm Workers or it's got a boring name or the period or, <laughs> but, um, but for me, it was really great to, to be able to try to recreate some of the the excitement and um, to interview these, these CSO members who are in their 80s and who can recall with you know with much excitement sort of going to the to the, the office and, and demanding that they you know be allowed to register to vote and going with groups of people and for the first time sort of turning the tables on on people who for so long had had abused them. And so I think it's an, it's an important, um, it's an important period to kind of, and I, 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 I try to tell this story, but I think there's a lot more work to do there, there about, um, many more angles to cover and more things on earth about to tell the, the full story of the, of the CSO. Yeah, no, certainly it's, uh, and, and pieces of the CSO have been discussed in, 
you know, a very, you know, a variety of books now, I think particularly over the last dozen or so years, there have a number of, um, you know, monographs have come out, uh, that have featured, you know, a chapter of the CSO or, or parts of it in its story. Um, but certainly you're right. I mean, at one point, I think the CSO had, um, about three dozen chapters stretched out throughout California. They were certainly the largest Mexican American organization in, in California, the most active at a point and the most successful. I mean, the, the issues that are discussed are, you know, challenging, you know, everything from very, uh, what would at the time was seen as very radical stuff, like, you know, challenging police brutality and actually winning cases, the first cases, right, against uh, the LA Police Department for police brutality. Uh, and then, you know, other things like, you know, conducting major voter registration drives and supporting John F. Kennedy uh, in his election and uh, also you know, influencing a series of, of local and regional elections. And then just the basic stuff that they did to improve their communities, to, you know, get streets paved, you know, uh, street lights put up, all these things. And, and so certainly I think for a good... Uh, Good period of time there from, you know, from its founding and, and, you know, the the end of 49, you know, and throughout the 50s, they were certainly perhaps the most progressive uh, and and active Mexican-Americanist organization around. Um, And and so, as you mentioned, there's and and there's going to be hopefully I know there's work coming out uh, on it soon. So certainly there's there's definitely a lot more to be uh, told and, and discussed about the CSO. Um, but you, you know, you cover quite a bit of it. There are certainly things, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a, you know, a nerd in, in, in that aspect of it. The CSO has attracted my interest for quite a while. And so I was pleased to learn quite a few things from, uh, what you cover, uh, through Ross's perspective in, in organizing, um, them statewide. Uh, so uh, we're, we're coming short on time, but let's talk a little bit before we wrap up here about, uh, Ross and, and, and Chavez and the UFW. Particularly, can you tell us a bit about what was Ross's, uh, you know, involvement in, you know, with, uh, the UFW? He, um, I guess I'll leave it at that and I'll let you answer that question and as well as what, how his relationship evolved with, with Chavez during that time. Yeah, so it's probably easiest to think of it as two phases that Ross has or two roles he plays at the UFW. When Chavez um, asked him to come back and work for the union, um, it's it's in the midst of a, a really important campaign where the UFW is going up against the Teamsters and a large grower called DiGiorgio, and they have an election, um, a, a union election that they... You know, Chavez feels they have to win, that if they don't win, they will call into question everything they've always said about their union, which is that if you give farm workers the chance to vote, to join the UFW, uh, at the time it was what became the UFW, um, the National Farm Worker Association or different names, if you give them a chance to vote for the union, they will vote for it. And so this was the first real election in 1966 that they're having where they're going up against the Teamsters and against the grower and the Teamsters are friendly with the grower. And if they lose that election, Chavez and Ross and a lot of people kind of felt like um, it would be disastrous because uh, here they are, they got what they wanted, they have an election and look, if they lose, the growers and everyone can say, look, they don't even, the people they say they've been working with for so long that they're channeling their anger about the injustice, don't even want to be on there. Don't even want them. And so Ross um, uh, helps direct or directs that campaign, the DiGiorgio campaign, and uh, and they win. And through that, for the next uh, couple of years, that's 1966. From about 66 to 
um, 70 or so, uh, he's really in the midst of a lot of, right in the middle of what's going on. Uh, the boycott develops with the UFW, uh, it develops and expands nationwide. He's going out to New York City to help develop it. Um, he's, there are strikes. He's kind of, he's, he's training a lot of the people and interacting with a lot of people who become uh, key leaders of the UFW, like Eliseo Medina, uh, Marshall Gantz. Uh, and, and then, um, and then, you know, out of around 1970, so the, the, the UFW, uh, wins their five year kind of strike and boycott and the grape companies all, uh, come to the table and, and, and sign agreements, sign contracts. Um, and then in 1970 and, and then there is another fight over the lettuce growers, and um, and that becomes a, a large strike. And um, large, they win a lot. The UFW wins uh, a lot of, of of new contracts as well. But the latter half of the, the of the seventies, Ross really shifts. By now, he's uh, in his sixties, and he shifts to becoming more of a trainer and mm-hmm. uh, kind of. Um, someone that Chavez will call on for special projects, um, but but really spends much of his time um, going uh, around the country training uh, UFW volunteers. Who you know, you basically get you you get five as a UFW volunteer or boycott volunteer. You're getting five bucks a week, and you have a place to usually crash, like at a boycott house, and you're trying to convince people not to buy. Um, grapes or lettuce and get people active on picket lines and in front of gr- grocery stores. And, and, and so Ross is really becomes sort of a one man training, um, school, um, right. taking all the things he has sort of learned during his career and training thousands of, of people. And uh, that's interesting and important, I think too, because, um, at that period, the unions, many unions are not as in, are not very engaged in organizing, mm-hmm. and the UFW is doing really exciting stuff around organizing. And Ross, I I found that you know I've had two organizing jobs, uh, one one at a community group in Brooklyn, one at a labor union, and at both places, just by chance, the people who were kind of running the show were trained by Ross wow. in the seventies yeah. and came out of the UFW, um, and so I think that's that's an important part of his legacy as well, just that there were a lot of people that that sort of, that went through a Ross-type school. Right. And uh, actually in Brooklyn, we ran a campaign that involved house meetings, which was a very raw, uh, a technique mm-hmm. that Ross became very, uh, became kind of his signature. And we used uh, house meetings on a lead poisoning campaign in Brooklyn. And so I was a person who, that took us through that campaign had been trained by Ross at the UFW in the seventies, but I didn't realize that. So I was, you know, it's a strange position. I'm writing a book about someone who, and whose techniques I had used without even realizing it right. years ago, which I think speaks again to the, the breadth and depth in some ways of his, uh, of his, of his life. And, you know, at a certain point, the, the, the UFW starts for, for various reasons starts, uh, you know, Chavez makes a series of destructive decisions and people start dropping out. Other people are forced out and Ross doesn't have a, he has some, a role in some of that, but a lot of it, he's 
just kind of watching from the side and um he he never he his relationship with Chavez I don't know how much they're actually interacting in the later period mm-hmm. when um they certainly were extremely close in the in the sixties and in the in the early seventies and mid seventies when there are crises that Chavez would call on on Ross to to get his input or to ask him to you know we need to go train these, these, we've got a big election coming up in Coachella and you go and train some folks forever. Uh, I'm not sure how, how involved, I don't think he's very involved or has too much communication with, with Chavez. Um, when there are some, you know, not so nice things happening at the union. Um, right. and, and a lot of, a lot of the folks that Ross thought were some of the best people, mm-hmm. uh, right. are, are leaving. And I, I don't think Ross talked about that much. I mean, I know he didn't. I talked to everyone that he would have talked to, and they said he basically, I think his his relationship with Chavez um, evolved to the point where he 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 didn't feel maybe that it was his place to criticize him publicly or privately, and that, um, you know, Ross was the person who, who you know, showed up at Chavez's door one time and one day and you know, set him down the path in some ways of being an organizer. And so he had a privileged position, I think, uh, his, his relationship to Chavez, but he never, um, never, at least as far as I could tell, really questioned the, the moves that Chavez made. Uh, he had an, he had an incredible loyalty to Chavez and he would put most things in, in front of that. And he, he would put everything else sort of behind, uh, behind that and, and remained loyal to Chavez to the end. And by loyal, I don't mean, I mean, he not just that he thought Chavez was a great labor leader and all these things, of course he was, but that, that he was unable to, to, uh, bring himself to criticize some moves that I think if anyone else had been doing these, uh, some of the things that Chavez did, um, Ross would have been the first to sort of go to that person and say, uh, bad move. But for Chavez, uh, he didn't go there. Yeah, no, that was certainly interesting. And it was something that I was, it was a part of the book that I was uh, very eager to get to. And uh, I guess like the only thing I can say is it's still kind of, as you've stated here, it still kind of remains a mystery um, as to, you know, again, towards the the late 70s as the the series of purges are happening in the union and, and things happen that make Ross uncomfortable. He's aware of them. They make him uncomfortable, but he's not on the board. And you're right. So because he's not on the board and because he's, you know, he was perhaps always working with the union as, you know, a, in a consulting like position and going out and training. You're right. I think both his admiration for his, for Chavez and he recognized that no one had sacrificed as much for the union as Chavez. And it's just a mixture of all these complicated things that perhaps came together and made it difficult for him to ever really push back. You know, um, yeah, and, and I, I, the, the thing that you can kind of say conclusively is that, you know, he never, he didn't talk about it to the people he was close to, like mm-hmm. for his, for example, his son, he never would, you know, would, would bear criticisms of, of various things. Um, but also that he didn't believe there were, there were a number of people that were, you know, there were these very militant lettuce workers who worked really hard, great organizers. Um, and Salinas that, uh, Chavez came to see sort of as a, as a threat to his power and orchestrated to have them, 
more or less kicked out of the union and that they were seen as this portrayed as this negative force trying to subvert the union. And Ross certainly, I think did not believe that he worked with a lot of the people that post that left the UFW who were accused of being disloyal or having plots to subvert um, the union. He had no problem working with them um, in different contexts. So I think it's, I don't think uh, he confident. He did not believe that the, the threats as described by Chavez and some of the Chavez followers, I don't think he thought they were, they were, they were real. And there's kind of this, this painful irony, which is that Ross had always, believed that, you know, you have to kind of go down to the base and find the people who are most affected and have them. And, and by the end, the, the people that are willing, you know, really doing the work and driving the organizing, especially these, these uh, lettuce workers in Salinas are, uh, you know, they're the ones that are being um, sort of being told they don't have a place in the union of which they're, you know, so passionately, uh, for and have been uh, have been sort of fighting for, and so I think there's this this like painful. Um, it must have been painful at some level for Ross to see that um, some of the these these militant workers there wasn't a place for them. Right, right. And well, you tell us again. I appreciate how much time you spent with us today. Um, could you wrap up? Uh, maybe we can wrap things up by just uh, telling us a bit about what. What Ross did after he, he, uh, I mean, in this, it's, I don't think it's really ever said that he ever left the union per se, but he, he moved on, right? Um, he, or, or Chavez didn't lean on him as much after, you know, the, the late seventies and in particular the 81 uh, convention when there was this big split, uh, that happens and the union kind of goes in a different, you know, direction. Um, uh, so, can you tell us a bit what is what does Ross do afterwards, and maybe just that, that points to you know his bigger legacy? A lot of these things we've talked about, um, you know, the the number of people that he just was able to touch and and train and have went on to do other work and found many many other organizations. Uh, maybe you can we can have a, a closing comment on that. Yeah. So he he continues until you know his, his later years. He's living in this kind of primitive one room cabin sleeping on a mattress on the floor. doesn't have, you know, doesn't really have any savings, but he's, he's continues to be active training organizers and training groups for everything from like the farm labor organizing committee, which is, um, was working on launching a campaign against Campbell soup company. He was working uh, with a group called jobs for peace, working on nuclear with nuclear freeze, working with his son, is then working with an organization called Neighbor to Neighbor, which was stopping, working to stop the flow of military aid to El Salvador. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of spends his later years um, lending his services and sort of his his own brand of organizing, training people in um, in a bunch of different around uh, a bunch of different causes uh, and a bunch of different organizations. And he doesn't really slow down too much until Alzheimer's. He he's he uh, develops Alzheimer's, and so that really is what keeps him from um, continuing to to organize. Um, and and during this period as well, he's trying to get his writings, and he's been working on this, you know, quote unquote, the book for decades now. And he's trying to, with the help of some folks, get his writings organized and together 
Um, but that's, that's really how he spends his, his, his eighties is he never, whereas Chavez, I think soured a little bit on organizing or looked, got interested in other things like building an intentional community and Mm -hmm. turning the UFW into more than a union. Um, uh, Ross really never, never tires (laughs) Mm -hmm. of, of organizing. And I don't mean organizing like all the, all the romantic things that you think of when you think of like organizing and social justice. I mean, like teaching people how to, um, use the phone effectively or knock on right. doors or having house things. He really, he loves the stuff. He loves the stuff that for, from people like Solinsky, it would have bored them to tears, but he never loses face or loses, never becomes kind of cynical. He, he, which I think it just because he thinks that organizing is both very important and it works. Um, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, for his, you know, his, his and on one level, the legacy is just kind of like, I mean, there's a legacy of the people that he trains mm-hmm. and um, the people that come out of it and the way in which they shape and continue to shape, um, you know, shape the, the, the past and continue the UFW, you know, I've, the people that came out of the UFW and Chavez sort of showing that farm workers could be organized into a powerful union and um, people have taken the lessons of, com- of connecting the farm work struggle, the consumer issues, um, running the most, so there's 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 a whole sort of generations of folks who I think he touched in some way, and um, and and can you know through his through his organizing, sort of his has his influence has seeped out sometimes unacknowledged but but often there, and then there's you know for me having spent a few years as an organizer and having a, a very personal. I guess understanding in my own mind of how hard it is and how sometimes it, um, it just feels like, what are we doing here? Um, <laughs> Ross, I think you look at someone like Ross and it's just, you know, sometimes you win. Sometimes like, this is how it always is. There's never a, there's never a blueprint. There's never like, you know, if you had a blueprint and you had guaranteed success, then in, uh, if you're looking for that in 1962, well, Chavez is not going to go out with no guaranteed income and move to Delano and try to do what no one has ever done before. And, um, and so I think the, when I think about the legacy or what, what, what you, what I take from, from having spent a, a few years trying to learn everything I could about Roth is that, um, you know, organizing sometimes works. And it works in a way that's um, that that is sort of deep. That can be deep. That can really shape people's lives and and um, and you know have people act in ways that which they thought were previously might have thought were were uh, were impossible. So that's that's sort of what I take from from Ross. Is it's, there, there's a, there's a cautionary tale too because he he did he prioritized his organizing. Uh, over everything, including, you know, his family and his wife and his, right. his kids. And so he's sort of maniacal in his devotion to organizing. Um, so it's not, it's not just a, a happy story, but, um, but I do think it's remarkable that the, the things that you can do when you um, get other people involved. Certainly. And I think in, in that untiring dedication to his work, him and, you know, Chavez were just, you know, it seems that they just, they came from the two pieces from the same pot or something. You know, they just, they, they came from the same root in that type of way. They were both just able to completely 
as you mentioned, kind of maniacally focus on, on organizing. And, um, and that statement you were mentioning that, that Ross said, I think is, is really important. You know, that he says, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Essentially, you're, you're, what they were trying to do were these very, um, you know, tough things that we're literally trying to overturn institutions. And so then the question is, well, what are you going to do tomorrow? Right. And he just had this undying, you know, dedication. And, and I think he really, uh, he was really convinced, you know, in the power of people, you know, that, that if once organized, uh, that people could very, could really uh, work in a democratic way and be, you know, to benefit their, themselves, you know, and to make decisions for themselves. And that seems that that is certainly something in, in all of his work that he never shied away from. He didn't ever, even with, you know, as you mentioned, the, the ups and downs of the organizing with the, the CSO, it, at one point it was at a peak and then through a number of issues, it, it kind of fizzled out. And then you had the UFW and it takes off and they had these tremendous victories. And then, you know, it, it, it kind of went its ways, but he never lost, um, it doesn't seem like he ever lost faith and, and lost really that belief, that core belief in, in the power of people to function democratically to improve, you know, themselves. You know, without the need of, ha- of bringing in outside organizations, outside people necessarily to do that for them. It's just a matter of organizing the people, showing them a few things what to do, and then they could do it on their own. Yeah, it was very sturdy. It wasn't like it wasn't like someone who, who abstractly believed like, yes, power of the people. People together can do things, and they go out, and it all falls apart, and they're like, oh, I'm never trying that again. You know? Right. <laughs> his, 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 he, he spent his life doing that, and he... He saw things crumble over and over again, but I think there was just, you know, uh, there was this kind of optimism um, mm-hmm. that 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 this was what he was meant to be doing, and that occasionally things got slightly better. And man, um, what better way to spend your your life than occasionally making things slightly better? As bad, as limited as that might seem, it, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's it. It works, and those those breakthroughs sometimes, um, you know, blast. Um, and so I think it's also important to remember that he didn't exactly see it as a, or he didn't see it as a sacrifice. It was right. Yeah. It was what he what he really loved to do. So certainly, certainly. Hey, well, Gabriel, thanks again for your time and and coming on to New Books and Latino Studies. And as I said, I know there there are many that have eagerly awaited you know this biography and are going to be anxious anxious to to read it. And so I encourage our, our listeners to do that. Get out, a, go out and get a copy of the book and, and uh, have a look at it. And Gabriel, thanks again for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Gabriel Thompson, author of America's Social Arsonist, Fred Ross and Grassroots Organizing in the 20th Century, published by the University of California Press in 2016. I'd love to hear your feedback and comments on today's podcast or suggestions for future ones. You can feel free to contact me at newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com. You may also rate and comment on the podcast through iTunes and uh, Twitter and Facebook. Thank you.